This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Welcome to another edition of Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. My name is Connor Power. I lead Mercer's financial institutions practice regionally in Europe, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by Marika Drew, Senior Director for our Financial Institutions Group for Central Europe, and Rebecca Jakes, Head of Portfolio Solutions for Wealth in Australia. A very warm welcome to both of you. So our focus today is going to be on the wealth management sector, and we're going to focus predominantly on portfolio construction. And what we're going to try and explore are how can wealth managers construct portfolios that are going to provide a better outcome for their clients and ultimately for them as a wealth management business. And there's one team that we're going to come back to repeatedly, and that's the team of resilience. So that might sound like a little bit of an odd team to focus on within portfolio construction, uh, but it does feel over the last number of years like we've jumped from one crisis to another. We've had pandemics, we've had inflation, we've had monetary policy and and a number of other issues for good measure. And when we come together as a group, including our research function, We don't always agree on everything, but there are certain things that we do agree on at the moment, which is that we're very likely entering a period of low growth. We've entered into a period of low cross-border cooperation, and we're also living through a period of rising volatility in geopolitical, socioeconomic, and environmental spheres. And given all that as a backdrop, we do believe that other crises or crises of sorts are very likely in the mid to short term. Now, we don't know where they're going to be or exactly what they're going to focus on, but we do firmly believe that wealth managers that are positioned to navigate those sort of crises, or to put it another way, that have built resilience into how they construct and deliver portfolios, are going to be better positioned to manage the risks and take the opportunities that present themselves over the next uh, coming period. So with that in mind, I thought a sensible place for us to start might be in relation to strategic asset allocation. And what we're encouraging our wealth management clients to do and what we're seeing a little bit in the market there. And Marika, I might come to you first for the European perspective on that. Yeah, no, thanks, Connor. Thanks for having me uh, today. Yeah, now, as you say, we've obviously seen that big spike in inflation and that interest rate tightening cycle lasting far longer and and obviously going to higher rates than, than many people expected. So as a function of that, it, it requires those discretionary wealth managers, um, even advisory wealth management firms to really revisit the, the assumptions behind their portfolios, to, to revisit the risk-free rates, revisit equity risk premia, revisit credit spread premia, and that's causing them to, as you say, reflect on their SAA, the strategic asset allocation. And what that means more broadly for example, for the, for the classic 60-40 equity bonds portfolio that many wealth managers have kind of had in place for certainly over a decade, 2010-2020, uh, you can't really rely on, on bonds to protect your portfolio when equities go down. And 
2022 proves to be a very difficult year for both bonds and equities. Um, so yeah, we see that that big big revisit of SAA. And with that, and we'll come probably on that later in the podcast, that appetite for diversification is ever increasing. So are kind of two things that people are really trying to achieve, but having a longer bias um, as a diversifier, looking for real returns and making allocations to assets that they believe deliver inflation protection, so probably infrastructure for the most part, or look in areas that the equity market can produce good good income, like consumer stables, utilities, and even sustainability-aligned strategies. So I'll pause there, but I hope that that gave some context of what we're seeing in Europe. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, it's good to hear those insights, Marika. So certainly, I guess the message there is revisiting strategic asset allocation, given the regime change that we've had. Um, Rebecca, are you seeing similar themes down in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought it was interesting right at the start, you mentioned you know, the change in that sort of not just economic but also geopolitical environment, right? Um, and that that has been a key focus where we've seen a lot of our clients actually have to look at not just those investment condi- conditions that have shifted um, but some of the other factors that are at play. And so that's actually caused us to do a lot more deep dive and drilling into even just traditional asset classes, right? So, you know, global equities, you know, how much over-reliance has our GDP, say, in Australia, you know, got connected to China and sort of Asia regions? What does that mean to our glo- not just global equity exposure but also emerging market exposure? We- we've also done a lot of work, um, and I think this has been a theme that's that's been there for a while, but also on your fixed interest exposure. I mean, you know, we know that you can't just simply reweight to just focus on equity and bonds. Um, you know, now that we think that there are stronger returns, but it's about making sure that you've got those sub strategies and, and drivers in the portfolio. So, you know, long term, we still believe that your strategic asset allocation really should um, be set to meet the forward expectations. But when you see such significant sort of regime shifts, um, but you know, um, in te- and also what we're seeing in what we believe is the, the inflationary interest rate environment, um, it's certainly time to revisit and, and make sure that they're actually built for the forward-looking environment going forward. Great. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, you know, one theme that has come out from both to be very clearly there is diversification. Um, and I'm interested in, in hearing a little bit more about that. So, Rebecca, you mentioned looking at diversification of within an asset class and adding potentially sub-strategies. Are we also looking at things like uh, different risk and return drivers? And one other element to be great for, to get your comments on is, I think it's fair to say in recent years, we've seen more sophisticated strategies become accessible to wealth managers and their clients. So how are wealth managers kind of adapting those into this review of SAA and, and increased diversification? And, and I might come to you first on that, Rebecca, if that's okay. Yeah, and it's it's absolutely important, right, to explore that whole range of now what's available, right, from from your investment options. And we have seen, um, you know, the growth and and sophistication in sub strategies. I mean, you know, if you go back sort of a few years, it was sort of difficult for wealth managers to fully access 
that sort of multi-asset credit and the full spectrum of it. Um, we now see that as like dedicated allocations in portfolios. Um, you know, we've seen, again, the resurgence of things like inflation linked and, and you know, inflation sort of, but, you know, connected assets, um, not just obviously infrastructure, but again, in that sort of, you know, fixed income space, um, predominantly in that sort of relative value, absolute return. So, Diversification is critical, um, and it's exactly to the point that you raised. It's trying to get in those different drivers of return, but also correlation, because the uncertainty that we're seeing in the you know economic interest rate environment and also geopolitical environment means you really need to get importantly those different drivers of return, but also different drivers of risk um, to help you know, protect the portfolio overall. Yeah, maybe, maybe Connor, if I can just, and Rebecca, if I can just add to that, I would say in the, among the European wealth managers, we've seen a real uptick in interest and expanding uh, the role of hedge funds in that context. So of course, equity fixed income remains for those clients that want to be in daily dealing liquid portfolios, but really trying to have a much, well, adjusting the allocation to alternatives. And if that has to be daily dealing, use its hedge funds predominantly, and then trying to see what what is it that can, to your point, Rebecca, kind of um, balance out the rest of the portfolio and be, be like a, a protection, um, more of a diversified protection than actually a return enhancer. And that comes back to the point around governance. It was always important, but even more so when these more complex asset classes come in and that requires more input, more expertise, more oversight than, I guess, historically a basket of investment-grade bonds or a basket of MSCI equities. Yeah, so you mentioned something there, Marika, that I think is very interesting, which is the increase in complexity. We also spoke about some of these strategies being maybe newer to access. Um, some of them, I think, often investors will think of as, well, they're more expensive. So how are we balancing that trade-off in terms of accessing something that might provide diversification with also balancing the fact that cost is going to be important to end investors, particularly given that, let's say, the, the most recent year where we've had scores on the board for returns was 2022, which was quite painful. So uh, with that kind of recent pain in mind, asking them to effectively spend more might be a bit of a difficult balancing act. How are we seeing that play out with some of uh, some of your clients maybe in Europe? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. It's a balancing act. But I, I would say that the, the real value that some of the actively managed strategies can, can bring to portfolios is Cost is important, but equally, if if the managers and and the the funds picked the strategy selected can demonstrate that will purpose within the overall portfolio, that that's exactly the balancing act that is is kind of playing out, right? So, trying to see what what is worth investing in, and after fees is is actually uh, really contributing to the portfolio versus maybe some of the classic really efficient markets where. More and more, absolutely, clients are looking at passively implementing that and trying to get that uh, that balance of an overall net cost uh, after cost portfolio in line and and interesting from from for their clients ultimately. That's what we see in the European market. I'm not sure if how Rebecca sees that. 
Yeah, we're not too dissimilar in in that regard. I mean, it's always sort of the net of fees performance that's really the focus. But we, what we have seen um, to a large extent is is making sure that we're we're prepared and prepared to take the fee where we think we can, you know, where we really believe we've got conviction we're going to get either the return or the diversification. So I guess it's less of a focus at, on the absolute fee. It's much more around am I paying a fee and am I getting what I want for that in line with that same concept, right? Can I get it cheaper um, if I just go passive and what's our track record or, or you know, what's what's our conviction around an active strategy actually delivering or, you know, alternative assets providing that diversification or non-correlated return or, or downside protection to, to the portfolio. So, I, I mean... Overall, wealth managers in general are just much more sophisticated in the way that they look at portfolios. Um, we tend to focus a lot more on the total net fee and then very clearly on all the different drivers underneath and saying, do I want to take the risk and the fee? And and then is this where I'm going to get rewarded? Great. Okay. I mean, that, that leads on to the next point I was thinking of, which is specifically with alternatives, private markets. Uh, we certainly in Europe, we've seen a huge shift towards wealth managers starting to use private assets within portfolios, and that's been driven by them becoming more accessible via platforms and newer regulatory structures that are more suitable for retail investors. But interested to hear whether that's momentum that has uh, continued in, in Australia and how wealth managers started to adapt, particularly in the in the private assets sphere, Rebecca. Yeah, so private assets are very much um, under the spotlight, and 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 really in Australia, uh, there is quite a lot of innovation that we're seeing in terms of where they're bringing those sort of investments to market and sort of putting wrappers around them that provide some sort of liquidity. So we, you know, we've sort of worked with firms on bringing a listed um, investment sort of vehicle. Um, to, to so in retail wealth managers can access private equity, right? Um, you, you still need to be conscious of, of what that liquidity can do in terms of does it dilute the investments, but it also does help a lot of our wealth managers, you know, actually meet their strategic asset allocation targets in private markets because, as we all know, you know, it's not just the challenges in terms of accessing them but then it's also the challenges within those structures about how they do capital calls, um, how they pay back the investments, obviously. And so trying to constantly keep your allocation set is in itself a challenge once you can even access them. And and that's really been something that's evolved and taken off in Australia, which has been really pleasing to see. Um, you know, it is a market that you know, presents a lot of opportunities, um, and uh, you know, it's also presented a lot of admin channel challenges that it's it's good to see the market actually tackling. America in, in Europe is it is it a similar situation? Continued momentum behind private assets. Yeah, absolutely. Continued momentum, continued interest. I would say uh, a vast majority was initially focusing mostly on private equity, attractive returns, et cetera, that, that story, but uh, increasingly much more interest in secondaries, co-investments because of that whole payout cycle that that is kind of mitigating some of the J-curve. 
And then alongside that, very much um, like we're tied in what we said earlier, looking at private debt, uh, looking at uh, some of the infrastructure opportunities. Uh, so we see it kind of across the board. The only caveat I would make is that there is a reality here that for many wealth managers, their underlying clients are relying on quite liquid portfolios. So we do see a bit of a of a of a split or a, the type of wealth managers that can really have that appetite and that demand to offer their ultra high net worth clients private market access is is really on that very higher end of investable assets uh, and, and the size of the portfolio. So I would say, and, and I'm sure this will be echoed by, by your feedback as well, that there is an increasing demand alongside pure loan lockup, GP exposure, private market exposure, or that the, the whole semi-liquid uh, offering. So I think we, we see that certainly for the, let's say, up to 10 million investable assets uh, alongside the, the pure private markets, let's put it like that. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more when I think about my own client base. There's definitely um, more of a, a use of the full private markets toolkit, if I could call it that, outside of just private equity, which maybe we would have associated with with private banks and wealth managers using historically. I think the next 12 months is going to be really interesting in Europe um, when we're looking at how some of these wealth managers are actually implementing private markets allocation. So, Ricky, you mentioned the use of semi-liquid funds. That's definitely uh, prevalent amongst wealth managers in Europe, and I, and I see that trend continuing. We also have the new ELTIF um, coming to market shortly, um, and I, I think the, that'll be widely used and adapted by wealth managers in Europe. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that space grows in terms of AUM over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, maybe parking the um, portfolio construction aspect for a moment, I think it's all well and good having the intellectual capital and the intention to adapt portfolios, but it's really going to be the ability to execute that that's going to dictate results for wealth managers and for their clients. So when we think about some of the elements we've touched on already, increasing use of alternatives, more diversification, looking at different risk and return drivers within portfolios, that's all resource intensive. Um, so I'm interested to hear how are wealth managers coping with that and are we seeing different governance or implementation models evolving or being adopted? Um, and I might come to Rebecca again first for that in terms of the Australian perspective. Yeah, so Australia is probably a little bit unique in the sense that um, particularly in wealth, um, you know, we went through that sort of royal commission that sort of sort of saw the whole wealth channel disaggregate. Um, what really came though to the 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 party was was technology, right? Which is through the the sort of managed accounts or separately managed accounts offering, and and what that means effectively is that most of our wealth clients now have very much shifted to you know working very much in partnership with like the likes of Mercer or other consultants where they effectively appoint them as the investment manager. Um, but we are building still very bespoke solutions. Um, very much tailored towards their business, but we are able to do that now because of the technology advancements through the platform. So it, it is giving them the ability to to gain that exposure to much more complex asset classes, be a lot more sophisticated around the way they understand and manage risks, and then also 
you know, really extend the way that transaction, transactions and executions play out because, you know, obviously as, as being appointed when you're the investment manager, it then becomes under our governance model um, to ensure that we're getting the platforms trading and executing um, by, you know, to the instructions that we're sending them. So it's it's probably been one of the biggest shifts that we've seen in in the Australian industry, and it, it continues to grow. Um, most wealth managers are recognising the efficiency of it, but it is a partnership, right? It's it's um, we talk about it being a bit like a marriage. Um, you want to make sure that you you know you're, you're forming the partnership with someone that you're prepared to be there with for the long term, um, and and really truly understands those sort of governance implementation operating frameworks that need that need to be there um, for this to work effectively as well. So not sure, Marika, if you're seeing that sort of trend more broadly in Europe or, or whether it's still sort of slightly more fragmented across the board. Yeah, I, I think it's not as, um, as, as clean cut as you describe it for sure. We see more different models um, for absolutely that and that that need for extra governance, the the kind of the resources required to add all these potentially additional asset classes to to portfolios means that often we we fulfil that role of what we describe as extension of staff, uh, helping with the heavy lifting, helping with that sourcing due diligence, even up to the the point of negotiating attractive fees, and then partnership models like you describe in the sense of us being an integral part in in that portfolio construction, in that sourcing, in that putting the investment proposition together. Probably depends because there's so many types of wealth management firms across the European markets from the from the classic global regional private banks to the, the independent wealth managers and then all the way to the large IFA um, net network. So we, we certainly see engagement models different by the type of wealth manager that it is. Um, but often we yeah, we fulfill that role of uh, what we describe extension of staff, uh, could be all the way up to discretionary manager uh, in helping getting exposure to new asset classes. Great. Thanks, Marika. It's really interesting to hear the kind of diverging approaches in, in both Australia and, and the UK and Europe. It also sounds like there's a lot of commonality in terms of how wealth managers are, are dealing with some of these challenges. So if I was to sum it up, um, sounds like there is significant regime change from a portfolio construction perspective. But with that, there are going to be opportunities. And we very much believe that the wealth managers who have the resilience built into their portfolio construction perspective to deal with the change are likely to be those that will provide the best outcome for clients and ultimately need the best outcome uh, for themselves as a business. So Marika, Rebecca, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, to the listeners, if you've liked what you've heard, make sure you subscribe for more. And if you'd like to discuss anything you've heard in the podcast further, you can reach out to your local Mercer representative or any of us on the podcast today or email us at ctci.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.